Alan, it's great to have you back on the podcast again. Great to be back, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this is the third time. It could be even the fourth, but I think it's the third. You were on the first time when we talked about, like, is bodybuilding healthy? And that was a long time ago. Could be in 2019. And then, and and we looked at some things like gaining weight and increase like high amounts of sugar intake and things like that. And then the last time I think was when you were with Eric Helms and Danny, uh, yeah. when we talked about who to trust online, if you remember that one. Yeah, that was a really good one. Yeah. How to, how to spot, yeah. how to spot trustworthy versus non-trustworthy information. Yeah. Which is kind of a little bit, what we're going to talk about today, but before we do for, for those who it might be their first, time listening to you would you like to do a bit of an intro to who you are and what you do yeah so i have just handed in my phd thesis at the university of surrey uh which was focused more on um kind of chrononutrition so timing of meals and also behaviors um in relation to metabolism um and and kind of energy intake across the day um And so I'm waiting to do my defense, which is on the 14th of June. Um, I did a master's in nutrition science at the same uni uh, while I was still working in law. So my background was originally um, in law working in Dublin uh, as a barrister, which I started in October 2009. Did my MSc purely out of kind of interest initially. I really didn't anticipate that it was going to go fully into research. Um, but the opportunity arose and I, w- I wanted to go into nutrition research. So jumped at that. Um, and yeah, so now I run, uh, Linear Nutrition, which is a research review based, uh, nutrition science website, which of course you're very familiar with. And I'm also working with Sigma Nutrition with Danny Lennon, um, and Dr. Neve Aspel has just joined us. Um, so we're putting out podcasts, the Quack Asylum episodes specifically, as well as the kind of normal subject specific podcasts and then the written statements as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. And the research review, I just wanted to comment on that before, before we get into it, I I just completed a master's like two weeks ago and the, the quality of the, the quality of the the lecturing, I suppose, or the teachings that you give around research and interpreting research was obviously really important to this day and age when everybody has access to research, mm-hmm. even if you've like never even done high school, uh, just in an internet connection is, yeah. is I would say above and beyond at least what I've experienced in terms of just the in-depth analysis. And maybe that's because they don't have the capacity or time to teach, but I think it's been very helpful for me as a, as a, person who wants to read and understand research and i know that's not for everybody but for for those who are i think this has been uh something that's very very good even even compared to the other research reviews that that i'm involved with uh, subscribe to i should say that yeah. will teach you the research but not necessarily teach you about research methodology as much if that makes sense awesome um that's great to hear these. so Thanks. yeah so yeah, and uh, you can pay me the the, the, yeah. the fee that I charge for that afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so today we want to touch a little bit on, say, precision nutrition or individual nutrition. And this is probably a conversation that will exclude, say, public health nutrition because it's very sure. much around person taking ownership and, and having, I suppose, the the luxury 
of of actually looking at these things within their nutrition. I know when we're yeah. talking about obesity and public health, often you'll get personal trainers or influencers or, or nutritionists, quote unquote, talking about, you know, what, what can be done to, to solve the obesity epidemic. Yeah. And it's just, you know, calorie deficit or whatever, but we won't get into that today because it's quite complex and a uh, different conversation. So um, before we, we jumped on air, we, we talked a little bit about some of the, I don't know if you want to call them fads or trends that are coming up in, in nutrition space recently. And um, I know you've recently done a podcast on Sigma Nutrition uh, around fasting, and you've actually probably covered a lot of these topics. But one of the one of the things I've seen recently is, say, the trend with high fat diets um, mm. around health uh, and well-being and, and longevity or health span. Um, that includes like high high saturated fat diets, um, even just uh, pretty, pretty much all animal diets or carnivore diets, even things like eating raw uh, meat. So, you know, what are what are the general thoughts around? why these things are coming up again. So that's a, it's a question that I've often wondered myself. I did read something actually just coincidentally on Twitter saying that research scientists will often, if they want to have something novel or new and to get famous or to become famous, mm-hmm. uh, they have to say something wrong because, um, because that's the only thing that's novel or new is something that's wrong. Yeah. Um, so, so I just wonder what, what your initial thoughts are on why these things are prevailing or becoming more popular like basically quote unquote wrong or, or disinformation is becoming popular amongst some quote unquote in like good scientists or people who have at least PhDs and should be good scientists. Right. Or, you know, at least are good in a certain field, you know, in a, in a discipline. So I I think Mm. there's a couple of things that play into the nutrition side of this. The first is that, if you look at some of the loud voices in these areas that actually have a scientific background, right? So not just a kind of random influencer or otherwise, their background is not in nutrition, right? They're not nutrition scientists. They haven't published in the field. And they typically start by building their profile within their kind of domain specific area of expertise. And that's where they start to generate momentum. So Andrew Huberman is a really good example of this. He started generating his momentum as this kind of neuroscience guy, right? And everyone finds neuroscience fascinating. Like I, I find neuroscience fascinating as a field. And it's, it's, it's a field where there's a lot of unknown unknowns, right? There's a lot we don't know about the brain, human consciousness, behavior. And I think people just really kind of dig that, that side of, of science. Um, And so, you know, a a part of this conversation, of course, is, you know, nutrients in the brain and brain health and how diet, dietary patterns, specific foods or nutrients influence brain and central nervous system health and potentially then risk over time. So it's kind of easy to start to kind of dip the toe into the nutrition side of the conversation. And often when they first start dipping the toe in, they're not doing it in a controversial way, right? Even Mark Hyman fits this bill. When he first started talking about nutrition, it was largely fairly sensible. It was eat more color on your plate, eat more dark greens, eat more, you know, eat the rainbows. This kind of like pretty sensible advice, although potentially not necessarily accessible for everybody. But like, as you say, we're kind of talking more about the individual level and assuming someone can. So it's all fairly innocuous. 
but as their platforms grow, I think, uh, and you're correct to point out that it's like, they're almost rewarded for wading in on stuff that's wrong, or they're certainly rewarded for going with either kind of the sexy sounding stuff, which a lot of the time is just mechanistic speculation and plus, well, we've got this enzyme does that and this, this pathway and neurotransmitter and this does this and this neurotransmitter needs that amino acid. So you should eat these foods, right? There's these enormous deductive steps being taken from discussing a, a kind of potential mechanism or even just an, an undisputed fact. Like, yes, we need certain amino acids to build a neurotransmitter. That says nothing about the relationship between diet and that particular neurotransmitter or supplementing a nutrient. And so they start making these huge leaps uh, and they're leaps of faith because there's no research to support the claims. Um, and it's a slippery slope for them because they're being rewarded in terms of their platform is growing exponentially. Their popularity is growing exponentially and they're now considered an authority by people who don't have the critical literacy or scientific literacy or domain specific knowledge to be able to recognize that what they're saying is kind of nonsense. And so they're now speaking to areas where they don't have any background expertise, but where they've built their platform on the back of at the start, a semblance of credibility. Like, Huberman is a scientist based at Stanford. Like that's no, that's no mean feat, right? It's one of the elite institutions in America. And yet he is a foremost propagator of nonsense on the internet. And these things are both simultaneously true. And so it creates a really tricky landscape. So I think at the one level, you get people who don't have a background in the field, starting to speak to the field, often initially in, like I said, very uncontroversial terms, and then slowly going down the slippery slope of making more and more outrageous claims and statements, but actually being rewarded for it in terms of their growth, popularity, and obviously then commercial um, kind of endpoints. Uh, and I think also as well in the mm. kind of more popular space, we just seem to be, and, and perhaps social media certainly rewards more extreme behavior. And we know it. I, I had an experience this week of getting sucked into the whole kind of happy pair nonsense about, you know, breast cancer. And there was a medical doctor from Ireland that went to try to back them up. And, you know, there was, there was, there was about two days where I spent going in pretty hard on, on the whole issue. And the engagement that my stories were getting was way above the average. Right. And as soon as I stopped, uh, the outrage, shall we say the outrage approach and went back to just mm. posting normal science stuff, the engagement was down by like 80% relative to what it was when I was going with violence. <laughs> and I think that speaks a lot to yeah. the algorithms. I think that speaks a lot to the, how social media amplifies outrage. It amplifies outrageousness. And so you'll get a, someone like a Paul Saladino, the carnivore doctor or liver king who are rewarded for being outrageous. Um, and, and as we've gone over time through the social media age, we can see this going through kind of the, the dietary extremes, you know, 10 years ago, low carb, wasn't that insane, 
right? A lot of it was born out of this kind of paleo or ancestral type movement in the kind of mid to late 2000s. A lot of it at the time was quite sensible. Again, it started from this place of not being really that crazy. It was like minimize or eliminate processed foods, you know, eat whole food, lean protein sources, you know, like slow digesting starchy carbohydrates like sweet potatoes. Uh, yeah, it had some other weird kind of rules, like don't eat white rice and stuff like that, but, you know, whatever. And, you know, eat plenty of vegetables and fruits, non-starchy vegetables and fruits and berries and this kind of thing. You know, and we've gone from that fairly sensible iteration of, of a low, car not necessarily that low, but lower carbohydrate diet to people now eating just meat and raw liver. And I think I think that progressive iteration from sensible to just absolute, you know, outrageous, completely, you know, uh, like extreme iterations of a diet. I think that progression comes because the normality of sensible recommendations stops being a platform that you can build on, right? It stops being a platform that someone can build an audience or a following or it, particularly commercial success, right? No one's now going to get rewarded for trying to get people to follow what was that early sensible kind of paleo diet, right? You're not going to get, you're, you're not going to get attention. Um, so I think that the social media landscape facilitates the evolution of extremity from sensible to, to outrageous. Mm. Yeah. And so, so you, do you think it's like a, like a, from the individual perspective who were making these leaps and they, they already do, it's, it's not that they're misled or, or, or don't know what good science is. Do you think it's just more of a, like a, an egotistical thing where it's just, they get this mm. dopamine hit and they just, they see, like you said, on the stories, they get the reward and they just kind of get drawn into it. Whereas if they stayed in their lane or, you know, only put caveats and everything saying this is mechanistic or animal. It's not even a hypothesis that it wouldn't get the same level of, of attention. And, and that's the reason why it goes that way. Because I even see with David Sinclair and he wrote the book, a health banner or lifespan or one of these, and it's mm. been very popular and, and I didn't manage to read all of it. I read some of it, but I, I know a lot of people have read it. And if you're not versed in science, but even still, if you're, intelligent, you're not going to be checking references and all this, at the sure. back of the book, the back of a novel. Um, he, 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 I think he know he has, I've seen on Twitter that he has colleagues who's worked with them, who's like clearly called them out and said like, look, this isn't right. Let's have a discussion. Like that's mm -hmm. a, a mechanistic study. It wasn't proven X, Y, Z. It was in, it was in mushrooms or fungus. Or yeah. something. He just blocks them. He just blocks them. Yeah. You know, I, I, do you think it's just that it got too far down the rabbit hole? that like, it's just, there's no going back or, or, or like, I, think fully I, I can't really understand the logic behind someone who, like you said, works at Harvard. Yeah. Well, because, because, because they're commercially, they're financially rewarded for this. You know, they've, they've now carved out a niche where they have enough useful idiots around them to, to support their sense of legitimacy. And they certainly have enough wider idiots who will actually swallow whole what they're saying. Um, and that's, that's not to be overly disparaging to like the general public because uh, not everyone is just in it. Like some people just don't have that kind of baseline 
scientific or, or critical literacy. And so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in there who I think would probably be better classified as victims of this kind of information. Right. Mm. But at the same time, I think for, for those, for the people like David Sinclair or, you know, or an Andrew Huberman or a Mark Hyman or, or whomever in this context, a Jason Fung, the, 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 the kind of lowest hanging fruit and most obvious explanation is they carve out a niche where they are commercially, financially invested and rewarded for the views that they hold. So they can't correct course because to correct course would be to pull the rug out of their vested financial interests in their products, their book, their uh, online platforms, they're like, you know, heavily monetized podcasts, usually, you know, they're all sponsored by athletic greens, funnily enough, <laughs> like this kind of stuff. So yeah, I think there's the reality of the fact that, you know, and a lot of them leave their kind of academic positions because it's more lucrative for them to be in the private sector, making money off whatever it is views that they hold. So I think, I think, you know, to them, it's not about science, uh, cause no legitimate scientist would take this course of action. Um, so even though they have the label of scientist, we know from the way that they approach things that they're, they're really not scientists. Right. Um, and so I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that they have heavily invested in these particular ideas and worldviews that they have about diet or health and they're commercially rewarded for that. And that's, that becomes their, it's their business to stand over and continue to propagate nonsense. Mm. And, and, and I know that he's not necessarily a scientist, but he's actually very far from it. But, um, Something that's really popular, and I think you may mention at the start of this podcast, is is the Liver King. And I I know yeah. he's not he's not an educator, but he, he does seem to be very popular. And I know a lot of people actually are trying to do what he's doing. So from the whole carnivore perspective, um, not carnivore, I should say, like ancestral eating, and maybe that kind of there's a little bit of overlap there. As if I don't know if humans ever ate uh, raw animals, but yeah. um, is there any? merit behind following what we did ancestrally from a diet perspective, or is that just complete nonsense? Uh, I think there are problems with the kind of operational definitions that we're working under in terms of how we define an ancestral diet. Um, it's been the parameters of that definition have been set by the community that purport to uphold the diet. But like I said, you know, ancestral eating 10 or 15 years ago meant really minimizing processed foods, eating foods very close to source. Yeah. Probably a heavy emphasis on animal origin foods and eggs and meats. Um, but even in the early evolution of that kind of way of eating from the research, people like Lauren Cordain, who's kind of considered one of the godfathers of the, the, the paleolithic diet, as it was called in the research, still recommended limiting saturated fat, for example, because their theory was that in our evolutionary past, if you look at the 
fatty acid composition of game meat in Africa today, it's very lean, right? It's high protein. It's not fatty meat and it's certainly not high in saturated fat. It's predominant fatty acid composition is more unsaturated fat. So they were like, well, this, this, if you're going to replicate an ancestral diet, it would still be low in saturated fat. For example, it wouldn't exclude starchy tubers. Um, and so you have this kind of sensible point of departure, uh, which ultimately ends up in people eating raw meat and liver. Uh, so it's this absurd transition. Um, and so part of the problem is over time, they've kept kind of defining the ancestral diet as, as one in which there are these foods that are just entirely not ancestral. Like butter is not an ancestral food. Um, and arguably really fatty meats are not necessarily an ancestral food. Um, and, and again, there's all these. Would that have changed? Would that have changed from say location to location? So yes, if you lived in Northern Europe and, uh, I don't know, Australia, another, uh, well, the Aboriginal or something, whatever the native, uh, culture was there, would, would that diet have differed because of the because of the environment and what can grow and what animals there were. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so some of the evidence we have from the actual researchers in that area suggests that as you're closer to the equator, the proportion of daily energy made up from plant foods would have increased. And as you got further away from the equators towards the respective poles, then the proportion of energy derived from animal sourced foods would have increased. Um, and even within that kind of broad statement, we would have had obviously seasonal variation. If you were living in somewhere like Northern Europe or closer to the, the kind of, you know, South pole. Um, so you would have had probably periods of the year where the diet was more tilted towards animal, um, uh, sourced foods winter time in particular and then you would have had periods from say spring and summer to harvest where that would have perhaps shifted um and you know a, a lot of this then uh, you know assumes that they're this kind of idea of hunter gatherers but you know the, the evidence for for certainly starting to cultivate and domesticate is, is possibly even earlier like both crops and and domesticate animals possibly goes back a bit earlier than we initially even thought. Um, and so one of the best papers on this was a 2014 paper by, a, again, a group of actual researchers in this area, not like the lads on Instagram. And what they did was they modeled mm. five different types of ancestral diet, right? And again, this is all modeling, right? A lot of this is theory, but they, they made a few assumptions. So they were like, okay, there they modeled a diet where every part of an animal was eaten so the organ meats as well as the muscle meats they modeled another where it was just muscle meat that was eaten another where it was uh, just organ meats eaten and, and another that was you know mixed in terms of its fish intake so predominantly more fish and then again respective kind of contributions of, of plant foods um and this is a really interesting attempt to kind of modeling what the macronutrient and micronutrient composition would have been for diets of potentially varying composition. But you still had particular characteristics of the dietary pattern and the various, all five of the dietary patterns 
that kind of repudiate a lot of what we're seeing now as interpretations of an ancestral diet. These diets were incredibly high in fiber, all of them. <laughs> um, they weren't particularly high in saturated fat, even with the inclusion of kind of organ meats. Uh, for people now that say, for example, that linoleic acid, omega-6, you know, we, you know, we're not designed, we just need the minimum 1% because it's essential, but nothing more. What's ironic is that those people currently tend to argue for just a high meat intake. But what this analysis showed was that in that period, your linoleic acid as a percentage of diet would have linear, linearly increased with the amount of meat that was eaten in the diet because linoleic acid is obviously found as a source in meat. Mm. And so you would have had in the high meat diets they had modeled 7% from linoleic acid. That's not dissimilar to what we have today. And yet we're being told by modern ancestral people to, uh, you know, that that 7% is too high. So, so there's all these, what, 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 what becomes mm. very yeah. apparent and hilarious to me anyway, when you see the claims made by modern ancestral proponents is how their interpretation of the diet is in the, it's the realm of fantasy, right? They've dreamt up this idyllic kind of imaginary version of, of a caveman sprinting around the place, hunting the woolly mammoth. And it's completely divorced as far as their interpretation from the actual evidence we have on the kind of modeling and, and various methods by which they've attempted uh, through, you know, these kind of analytical techniques, bone analysis, and otherwise to try and piece together what our evolutionary diet may have been. Uh, but it certainly would have been varied. Absolutely. And it would have varied by region and season. Absolutely. And we can certainly say that it was far from a diet devoid of plant food, far from a diet devoid of fiber, um, and far from a diet in which, you know, saturated fat was through the roof. Um, so yeah, the, the mm. modern interpretations are divorced from the available evidence that we have. And on, on that topic, I guess, when you talked about, uh, linoleic acid, one of the, I say, there's probably a few things with like the carnivore slash ancestral slash biohacker gets, has some sort of Silicon Valley feel of of yes. it is that seed oils and uh, mm -hmm. you know which people don't even really understand what it, it is in seed oils that they're against they just know that seed oils um are bad and i've actually seen diagram there the other day where or like a hierarchy kind of pyramid where it was like uh our, our diet is, is full of poisons microplastics seed oils um i can't remember what else was on it but it was, just, it was funny that people are so yeah. against these seed oils and you know, canola oil or rapeseed oil or sunflower oil, and, and you have to cook with ghee or butter or lard as if, as if, it's, as if that is better. So it would be interesting to hear your, your thoughts on is, is saturated fat for somebody, I, I know from a, say a public health um, point of view, we would want to try and decrease that from a personal or precision nutrition point of view, is saturated fat, like how bad is it? Do we need to limit it? Um, does it have any impact positively? I know there's often associations with, say, increase your testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. And then if replacing that with uh, or replacing that uh, for seed oils or, or you know, other omega-6 oils, um, do they have any negative impact on your health? Are they, say, oxidative 
what does oxidative even mean? You know, what's you know, oxidation, etc. Um, is everything oxidized in the body? So I know that's kind of a packed question there, but yeah, get your thoughts. No, it it is. A, it's a core tenet of this community now is that. Uh, and they have these various narratives built into their belief system, right? So they've the narrative about our ancestral past. They've a narrative about kind of the evolution of recommendations for diet. Um, they have a narrative about the food industry. Uh, and within that narrative is, is there's a relationship between their view of the ancestral diet and then their kind of narrative about, you know, how we got to kind of having dietary recommendations and saturated fat links across both of these narratives. So they make the assumption that our evolutionary diet was bacon and butter. And they then argue that we unfairly demonized saturated fat and that it was all a big conspiracy, um, you know, to get people to eat sugar. And now we're all obese. Uh, so it's attractive in the utter simplicity of the narrative. So I can see why people buy into it without much thought. Um, but it's just total nonsense. Like the, like I said, the, 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 the available evidence that we have suggests that saturated fat in the evolutionary diet on average was about six or 7%, maybe peaking at 11% in some of these modeling studies that had like, uh, you know, both organ and muscle meat being consumed in a diet. Um, but certainly nowhere near the kind of high levels that we saw in industrialized countries kind of over the start of the 20th century and particularly then jumping up after the second world war. Uh, so this kind of narrative has suggested that not only are saturated fats not associated with say cardiovascular disease and heart disease in particular, but that they actually are beneficial and that, that we should be deliberately consuming more and that, of course, if you're going to be making this argument, you need a culprit, right? You need something else to blame for what apparently saturated fat was to blame for. And that culprit they've honed in on is linoleic acid, omega-6, polyunsaturated fat. And that also transverses both their narratives about the ancestral past and the more recent past. Uh, so the ancestral aspect of omega-6 is that it wasn't in our diet, basically, other than they do admit, oh, it's, it is an essential fatty acid, so we need it for life. But we only need about 1% um, for physiological function. So their argument is, is basically that like 1% to 2% of your diet, which you would get naturally if you were just consuming meat, is all that we need. And that any more than that is deleterious to health. And then within this whole industry conspiracy type narrative, they locate kind of linoleic acids as, you know, the explanation for disease, every disease that we have. And they'll argue that, well, it was in the context of vegetable oils coming into the diet because we were told saturated fat was bad. And then we consumed these vegetable oils and they're actually what's killing us. So again, it's a really simple narrative for people to latch on to, um, particularly if they're not interested in actually thinking. Uh, and it actually just both of them are, are quite interesting in how they completely, in many ways, again, contradict themselves and contradict what we know. So to mm. start with saturated fat first, like I said, one, it's just there's no evidence that it was high in the evolutionary diet. Two, 
the body of evidence that built up to recommending lowering saturated fat wasn't, as they say, relying on one work of epidemiology, which is the seven countries study. It was actually based on really tightly controlled metabolic ward studies where people lived in a lab for a month, sometimes more, where everything about their diet was controlled to maintenance level of energy. So they weren't losing or gaining weight. So the effects were independent of total energy intake and where they manipulated diet by changing fat subtypes without changing calories. So they'd feed them butter, then they'd feed them olive oil, then they'd feed them a sunflower oil. So they'd manipulate the type of fat in the diet. And, and the body of evidence that we've built from that has been replicated over 70 years. It's never been disproven in these tightly controlled studies. The relationship that saturated fat has on driving up LDL cholesterol, which is the main causal risk factor for heart disease, for atherosclerosis and coronary heart disease. And in all those studies, they showed that when you replaced saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, like vegetable oils, you got the most pronounced reduction in, in your blood cholesterol levels. Now, this is where the vegetable mm. oil thing kind of comes in, right? Because one, again, linoleic acid in the ancestral diet wasn't just confined to one to 2% of energy. And, and the, the argument that we just need to eat more meat now, kind of, if, if that's, if we hold that those modern ancestral kind of proponents think that way, which they do, well, then the implication is that your linoleic acid intake would be higher anyway. It would be as high in that ancestral period as it would be in current modern diets. And yet they're arguing that back then we had no disease, but now we don't. So there's absolute inconsistency there. But secondly, what we know now is that it wasn't necessarily vegetable oils or linoleic acid per se. What started becoming popular during the Second World War, in fact, was how do we preserve food? If we're going to be making food, for example, in the US and shipping it to, you know, Marines fighting in Okinawa, Japan, or in France, how does that food not go off? So a lot of advances in the food industry occurred during the Second World War as a means of preserving shelf life and otherwise. And one of the methods that developed in that time was hydrogenation. And this is a chemical process where you're, you're essentially exposing an oil uh, to heat. Um, and it, it, it has, it changes the chemical configuration of the fat. And it would do this with any type of fat, but the oils that they were applying this to tended to be high in polyunsaturated fats and omega-6. And what, what this process created at the time where there wasn't an appreciation for was what we now call trans fats. And they're called trans fats because an ordinary polyunsaturated fat, any ordinary fat, but an ordinary omega-6 or otherwise would be in what we call a cis configuration. And that's just to do with the double bonds. It's a chemical kind of configuration. We don't need to get into the details necessarily. But the trans version then completely alters in a very subtle way, but biologically really important way, the chemical composition and the structure of that fat. Now, the body doesn't recognize the difference, so it incorporates it into tissues as if it was just an ordinary cis polyunsaturated fat. But 
it, with the trans configuration, it has completely different biological activity and it actually sets off all these different processes of like inflammation, um, you know, and, and is really has a really negative impact on blood cholesterol levels. And in these really tightly controlled studies in the 1950s, this was actually shown. So there was one study in particular that used a natural version of a polyunsaturated omega-6 rich oil and the hydrogenated version of it. And when they used the natural form, participants' blood cholesterol levels went down. When they used the hydrogenated form, it went up. The problem is there was a disconnect between science and, and the food industry. There's always, there's still a disconnect between science and the food industry. This isn't anything new, but this fits nicely into a conspiracy theory narrative that they have. And then you have a number of studies that were conducted through the 1960s where they were supposed to be using polyunsaturated fat-rich oils or spreads to get participants to replace their saturated fat with. But this handful of studies found this increase in heart disease risk. Now, we know now that the foods that the participants were given were hydrogenated fat foods, hydrogenated fat oils. So they were laced with trans fats, potentially up to 30 to 40% of their fatty acids were trans fatty acids. And we know that that massively increases cardiovascular disease risk. And we know from the rest of the 70 years of research that these studies are outliers and that when we account for hydrogenation, when we use natural vegetable oils, even if they're rich in omega-6, uh, we see a reduction in, in cardiovascular and heart disease risk. Now, this isn't to say that all oils are created equal. The fatty acid composition of oils differs. Um, and even within the polyunsaturated fat class, you know, there are better oils than say a safflower oil. Um, and that's because these better, like a rapeseed oil is a really good example or what they call canola oil in the States because it has a much higher omega-3 content as well. It's just, it's a better fatty acid profile as an oil, but talking about different nutritional qualities of two different products is very different from saying that one is literally going to kill <laughs> people if they consume it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have a total body of evidence, including epidemiology, tightly controlled feeding studies and human intervention studies that shows that when you replace and reduce saturated fat and you replace it with polyunsaturated fat, including omega-6 linoleic acid, you get a significant reduction in cardiometabolic disease risk. And what we've traditionally looked at for saturated fat was you, was usually the effects on LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol in the blood. But from more recent studies, we know that actually, even if you're not over consuming energy, if you have a high saturated fat intake, it increases fat in the liver. So once you're increasing liver fat, there's knock on effects on insulin resistance. So the liver becomes insulin resistant. We know that saturated fat increases insulin resistance. So this is Everything they argue for is the total opposite of what our current scientific knowledge says. They'll say, oh, reduce mm. your carbohydrate and consume more animal fats to improve your insulin resistance or sensitivity. And that's yeah. literally the opposite of what the research on fatty acids and insulin resistance says. So there's no level at which they're correct with any of these kind of assertions from the perspective of evidence which is why the whole community is built on anecdote and narrative because they don't have evidence ultimately mm. to support their claims. 
maybe maybe the liver king is because he has accumulation of liver fat rather than actually him eating liver. Um, but but who knows? Um, just ju- just a final question, just regarding the say some of the thought processes with like, well, we we ate animal fats and they contained omega sixes. Um, one thing that has come from say the anti-vegan community is that um, animal organs meat or animal meat will contain similar but more bioavailable nutrients such as you know vitamin a compared to the alternative versions in carrots or other vegetables what what's what's the kind of science say on that yeah i mean this idea comes back to like this concept of kind of nutrient density that you'll often hear people argue for in this community and it's it basically says you know that per weight of a given food, you'll have higher levels of certain nutrients, whatever that is in, for example, like liver or that the form of the nutrients. So with vitamin A, it's like, oh, it's preformed versus the vitamin A that you would get in orange pigmentation vegetables like sweet potatoes or carrots or butternut squash. Um, One, there's, there's no evidence that that vitamin A pro vitamin A or, or the, the kind of vitamin A that we convert is in any way less bioavailable or, or, or less, you know, kind of, uh, associated with any kind of health outcomes. Uh, and secondly, this whole concept of nutrient density is just kind of redundant a little bit because it, I, it's overly reductionist. It, 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 it kind of hones in on a specific food and labels it as kind of good or bad relative to this relatively arbitrary definition of what constitutes a good food. But like, we don't subsist on a single food. Well, (laughs) there's a few people doing this now, but generally speaking, we consume total dietary patterns. We'll tend to obtain nutrients Mm. from multiple foods in our diet. There are other characteristics of food. You know, there are foods that are not particularly uh, nutrient dense necessarily, uh, but they're still incredibly good for our health. So non-starchy, you know, green leafy veg is a good example of that. You know, you need to eat a lot of it by weight to get a, a certain bang for your book nutrient wise. And so they'll make this argument that, well, you know, if you ate X amount of liver versus X amount of kale, you'll get way more nutrients in there. And it's just like that, but that's not a metric of, of the health outcomes associated with those foods. So they're, they're, uh, they're forced into kind of making up their own rules of the game in a sense to try and make these definitions because, you know, if you're going to define red meat along lines of nutrient density, you have to ignore the evidence for, you know, associations uh, with very high red meats consumption and adverse effects on cardiovascular mortality and certainly colorectal cancer risk. And then you've got to ignore that even though our kale, just to stick with that example, doesn't have the quote nutrient density that the liver has or the, the kind of ribeye steak, you know, it's a, within the family of dark green leafy vegetables, a food group that is robustly associated with positive health outcomes. So a big, a big feature, a characteristic of the thinking in that community is to ignore human outcome data 
um, because again, it doesn't it doesn't uphold their worldview. So they basically ignore the research that we have live humans in favor of making up their own kind of little rules and little heuristics to think about diet, none of which really kind of makes sense from an evidential perspective. Well, Alan, thank you so much for coming on. You're a wealth of knowledge as always. Where can people find more about you and what are you up to over the next coming weeks and months? Uh, so what I'm going to be up to is using the extra free time uh, since I've handed in my thesis and wrapped up the PhD to focus on the website, which is Alinea Nutrition, and to focus on my work with Danny and Sigma Nutrition. Um, so they'll find me in both of those places. And then on social media, the only place I lurk is on Instagram at the nutritional underscore advocate and people will find me there as well.